You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you're interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at 2 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of us needs and appreciates all your support. another digital noise and oh my god do we have a towering stack of stuff to talk about it's so big me and that's what she said uh she didn't though she's never said that she said it best oh that's cute that's what he said <laughs> john golson is here with me hello john hi chris any reports from the world of john golson uh, uh what no no nothing new to report nothing new to report all right fair enough i got a christmas show you do. But we usually plug my stuff at the end, so I'm caught off guard. Yeah, hey, like, you're like, wait, wait what? Is the oh. show about to be over? Are you about to- <laughs> yeah, didn't we do the show already? It's been a rough weekend already uh, for me, I got, John. I got a, uh, I got a primetime, uh, like the good choice, like like the Saturday night spot uh, for the first three weekends in December. Uh, so I'm doing a show. Wow, that's cool. Like a sketch comedy show? Yep. Awesome. Yep, so yep, you're yep. writing it and directing it type thing? Yeah, or? same as... Uh, see, I didn't write all of Hell House, but I wrote all of Voyage. I can't remember which one you saw. Um, mm. If you saw the Halloween one or the I didn't see the Halloween one. one. Okay. I saw the theme park one, yeah. Um, so this will be a Christmas-themed one. It will probably not be a full hour of sketch. It will probably have stand-up comics and improv as okay. well, simply because I'm like, I haven't been as active in the theater so i'm kind of like ramping back up into it but i have a choice slot like that that night slot on a saturday night downtown is pretty good so, uh, so if people are going to be in austin for that when is it and where can they get tickets the first saturday of the first second and third saturday of december i don't know what the time is i sure. think it's probably seven thirty or 8 p.m but tickets will be available at falloutcomedy.com okay and what do you have a name for the show yet well you're not actually, yet not I yet pitched <laughs> I pitched Xmas the Dark Phoenix Saga, <laughs> but I don't think that's what it's going to end up being called, but that was on my pitch. Xmas form. Apocalypse works, yeah. too. Yep. You could do a it Christmas apocalyptic Days movie theme. Days of Past. <laughs> but it's yeah. like, yeah, Scrooge. Days yeah. of Christmas Past, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Or Christmases of Days Past? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I because I like you, I let you break my house rule, which is the word Christmas is not uttered in here oh. until November 1st. Uh-oh. <laughs> Because this Sorry. is this is Halloween month, and in this house we celebrate Halloween. Yes, at, I, at I least have nothing to promote for Halloween. No, 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 not even your comic book that you work on, Halloween Man. Uh, I'm f- I am just wrapping up on some inking. I don't know when that hits, so I can't really promote that one. Well, 
Okay, then. I guess we'll go into reviewing the movies. Ah, movies. If we must. We're going to start off with an Arrow release of a 1968 Japanese horror film. Of course, we're talking about horror films. Not just because it's October, because it's me, and I tend to get us a lot of horror films to talk about. Called The Snake Girl and the Silver-Haired Witch. I remember looking at the title of this and going, like, knowing nothing about it, and saying, this could literally be from anywhere and any time. I have no idea what to expect from a movie with that title. It, it is uh, distinctive, but it's about a young girl named Sayuri who gets reunited with her estranged family uh, after she's sort of brought back out of an orphanage. They're like, oh no, your family here is well- welcome to greet you, uh, but discovers her mom is an amnesiac, doesn't remember very much. She's got a sister that, for some reason, they keep in the attic, locked in the yeah, attic. Yeah, she has a secret sister. Yeah, and then her father is a, I think it's a herpetologist, is that the correct term, for someone who studies snakes? Mm-hmm. Uh, and he has this, like, downstairs room filled with, like, the most deadly poisonous snakes and other poisonous creatures ever. So, you know, charming home life. So the title alone, you're like, okay, Snake Girl, we're going to probably assume that's the sister in the attic. And you would be correct to assume that. But what is going on? I'll be honest, John, at the end of this, I still didn't entirely know what was going on. But that's okay, because I felt like there's just enough weirdness in this thing. Just enough... It doesn't feel like any other Japanese horror film, that's for sure. It was based on two different manga that were smushed together into one movie. Mm. I don't think it benefits from having two source materials. I actually think the the silver-haired witch part of Snake Girl and the silver-haired witch is just kind of an unnecessary sort of, like, tack on yeah. in the last 20, 30 minutes like, of the movie. Oh, and here's another and character. And witch. <laughs> <laughs> and really, I think the snake the snake girl stuff was fine. Um, there's lots of like weird, hallucinatory, dreamlike sequences. This was pretty fast-paced. You know, it's always nice, as me being like a classic horror fan, it's always nice to find like another black and white horror film that I find really entertaining that I haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. And I thought this was really like... Uh, it it moved at a clip. I actually had to start it. I had to start this one twice because I I wasn't in the groove for subtitles or whatever at the when I started it the first time. And I started another time and was like, oh yeah, they're like they're talking, they're explaining things like right off the bat, like they're dropping exposition bombs right off the bat. Yeah. So it required my full attention. I gave it my full attention. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. I liked this one. A decent fun with it. It. it- it could have been a little faster moving, certainly. You but think so? what are you going to get from a Man. 1960s low budget Japanese horror film? And you know, interestingly, this is directed by Noriaki Yuasa, who directed the bulk of the Gamera films. Uh. He like directed the first one and then like the next eight or so after that. All the original Gameras, mm-hmm. they're all him. He's the father of Gamera. The special effects are are effective in it. I mean, there's stuff in it that's like obvious puppets. Yeah. Um, I think the there's a weird thing where when the sister looks quote-unquote normal, she still looks kind of waxy and sweaty all the time, which yeah. is like, she's kind of shiny. And uh, So I think the makeup is pretty good in it. Yeah. Um, I, I dug the heck out of this. Uh, you know, I think you liked this one more than I did, but I did think it was interesting. I think partially because it just wasn't even faintly what I was expecting. You get a little frustrated with, like, you know, the the main character, the good girl, because she's just so good to the point you're like, okay, stop it. Seriously, nobody is that good. <laughs> nobody is that nice. And she's like, it's okay. I don't mind. I'll trade with her and live the rest of my life locked up in the attic so she can have a life. No, no, no. I think she, I think they frame that by her just being so happy to not be in the orphanage anymore. But the whole thing has like 
like a dream like quality yeah, it to does. it, you know, where nothing really feels like this is supposed to be really happening. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't think that's ever established like, no, this was all a dream of a girl in the orphanage or anything like that. It just it just is one of those movies with that type of feel. And Arrow, of course, has done a great job putting this one out. Uh, if you're a fan of these films, I mean, it's got a minimum of bonus features. Like a lot of these, like Deep Dive had to search for it. <laughs> Arrow releases are, but I, I think it's if you if this sounds up your alley, it probably is. So let's move on to our next title, which is a film that has been on my bucket list to see, like. Ever since I started getting into horror films. Is it the bucket list? <laughs> it is not the bucket list, but it was the a curiosity. is on my bucket list. It was a curiosity that the director of the Godfather movies, you know, made his first major film was a horror film that was all but unlocatable by me for a long time. Now, I didn't realize that you could actually pretty much just find it on YouTube. I probably would have tried to watch it before now. But I guess I'm glad I didn't. The film is Dementia 13, which Coppola made in 1963. Totally independent black and white horror thriller film, which was black and white largely because they couldn't afford color. <laughs> We're at that level. And uh, it was re- released by AIP, with uh, bundled with Roger Corman's X, the man with the X-ray eyes. Of course, this was a Roger Corman production. And, you know, I mean, it wasn't so much I had heard anything specifically good about this movie that made me want to see it. It was just like, how have I not yet seen a 60s horror movie directed by Francis Ford Coppola, who, of course, later would go on to do Bram Stoker's Dracula, a movie that, you know, is a mixed bag in some ways, but not because of Coppola's direction. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I was very excited to watch this. And I got to say, ultimately, I thought it was kind of a disappointment. (laughs) Yeah, I this one lost me two times. I, I there, it's this may have a I can't think of any other film, you know, we've been doing this I think for going on 4 years that you've had me on digital Jesus noise. Christ, it yeah, been it's out? been a while. Oh my god. And um I think this is the first time that I've watched a movie twice before we met to record because I couldn't retain any of what I had watched. Like I felt like you know, uh, you take a reading comprehension class in school. Like I watched it once and then was like, I have no idea what I like. I don't remember anything about it to the point of being able to talk about it. So I fired it up, watched it again. And Chris, it has already left my mind. Yeah. After, I'm like looking at the, after the second Wikipedia time. plot description. And it's I'm like, like a, it's like wait. a pot boiler about like, I mean, it was definitely made in the, in the loo of, in the hind view of psycho being a big hit and so there's elements of that here no question about it sorry my cat keeps trying to eat the back of john's head and is being largely successful (laughs) uh it's this woman um she wants inheritance so she acts like her dead husband is still alive to get in good with the family and there's an additional family member uh that they keep kind of secretly talking about and everything is geared towards this this reveal of this like this secret unknown sister that's part of this family. Right. It's a, it's just kind of a pot boiler about greed. Um, yeah, it, it is not that there's anything one way or the other negative about it. Like it's shot well enough. It's acted well enough. I think that Coppola is cut. Um, I yeah. would be curious to see the original, well, the original quote unquote original. This is the, the director's AIP cut. Version. To I'd like sure. to see the Corman version because apparently it was changed pretty yeah. drastically. So this is Coppola going back in, because the man loves to edit, yes. And going back in and re-editing, 
uh, Dimension I mean, Is that all he does now? Is That's, go back yeah. to his old films <laughs> yeah. and re-edit them? Yes. But, I mean, like, largely what's here is not so much stuff that the AIP uh, Corman version took out as much as this took stuff out. Because Corman added a, a couple more violent killing scenes, and he added a really dumb part in the beginning that, that was very a schlocky theater thing to do with, like, where the guy just sort of, what was it, did like a fear meter type thing or something? It was just yeah, like... Yeah, very William Castle. Yeah, very William Castle. I, there's parts of this that seem like it's going to be a lot more interesting than it is. It's like very gothic feel to it. And they're like, oh, the, the, the daughter who died young and the family's kind of really weird about it. And like where the outsider who's coming in is like, what's going on with all this? I, you know, and, and then by the end, I was like, that's it. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I thought a lot of it was shot very well and there's some neat ideas, but they just don't pan out to anything that's really that interesting. Yeah. I mean, what are you going to do, man? Coppola is on the disc, so if you're a Coppola completist, you need to have every every movie he directed. He he definitely had a hand in the creation of this disc. He gives an introduction. Yeah, and, uh, and does records a commentary for yeah. it as well. And you can see on the disc that the Dementia 13 test that was originally attached to the beginning of here. Uh, <laughs> the world's foremost authority on medical hypnosis, Dr. William J. Bryan Jr. Okay. Yeah, because hypnosis plays into this on some level. I don't know, John. I want. I was so disappointed. I didn't love this. I wanted. I was ready for this to be like. Finally, you know. Yeah. I've been waiting so long to see this one, and then it was like meh, meh. Oh well, Dementia Thirteen is a uh, a miss. And then we go to a film by Arrow, a re-release of a movie that is held up as by fans who must be legion because they made umpteen sequels to children of the corn that this original is somehow like this great Stephen King adaptation. And I always feel bad talking smack about it. Cause I like have a guy who's kind of a friend who's plays like the main, like, or I guess the secondary main bad kid who becomes the bad kid in it. And I was like, Oh yeah, I've, I've hung out with that guy. He's really cool. Courtney Gaines. He used to come to town a lot and he was close friends with a close friend. In fact, I got him into the fantastic fest closing party one year. <laughs> Cause like, Hey, can I get this guy in? Uh, sorry. Nobody in without a badge. He was a uh, Malachi in uh children of the corn. They're like, yeah, he can come in. <laughs> This movie here... Yeah. Are, so, you the, are you the same as me that you're so like... this movie here... What? I talked about this on Twitter the other day, and I didn't bring this one up, but there were these movies that were like the schoolyard movies, which was if they aired, then the next day everybody was talking about them. Yeah, yeah. And it was coming up because somebody was mentioning um, uh, Motel Hell. Motel Hell was one of those movies that if it came on UHF, you could guarantee at recess yeah. or at lunch, everybody was talking about Motel Hell. <laughs> Squirm was another one. And then for those who had premium cable... Children of the Corn was another one. And this had been, in my mind, played up as like something truly terrifying. Uh-huh. I didn't see it until I was gifted this by a friend on a double feature Blu-ray that had Hellraiser on one side and like Children of the Corn on the other That's side. That's a weird mix. And uh, hey, um, this movie wasn't scary. Um, no. It wasn't, it was barely even good. There's, I think that there's like, so you have Linda Hamilton and uh, who's it, Horton? Is it Peter Horton? From 30-something, he's a director yeah, now. Yeah, Peter Horton. So you have Linda Hamilton and Peter Horton. Um, they're out in the country. They accidentally hit a kid, and they pull over on the side of the road to like, oh. I th- are, they, are they okay? Yeah, and uh, they're looking for help, and they stumble across this town where the children in the town are all part of this cult that worships he who walks behind the rows. Yeah, like rows of and, corn. Uh, and there's like 
some of the kids aren't as deeply indoctrinated, and so Linda Hamilton and Peter Horton are like, we're going to save the the kids that aren't as far gone. Yeah. It's, um, the kids speak in like this quasi-biblical talk, like not actual like conversations, but like, <laughs> like they're reciting Bible verses that don't exist. Yeah. Um, it's not scary. It, it, everybody all. feels like the, the, short of the main, who's the kid that's actually in his twenties? What do you mean? The one that plays the main. Oh, Courtney Gaines. That's Malachi. Malachi. Not yeah. the redheaded one. Oh, that, okay. That's, that one's Malachi. You're talking about John Franklin, who's Isaac. Yes. Yeah. Isaac. Who's one of those weird, those kids who, I don't know what his deals, but even I remember seeing him in something when he was like, you know, 20 years after this and he yeah. still is like really small. Yeah. And... <laughs> so the kid that plays Isaac, I believe that he's giving his all. This is like his first major film and he's given a hundred percent. Everybody yeah. else is like, even from a directorial standpoint, like this feels so perfunctory. Like nobody gives a crap. I agree. It's like, it's the bare minimum of anything to be able to convey the story or like blow it up to like feature length. So what do you think it is about this particular one that a lot of people glommed onto? Cause I I know people out there, I have friends who are big fans of this movie and I've never really gotten what it is that they like about it. So I think at its core, it is genuinely weird. Like the concept of, Oh, these kids all form a cult and they worship like an unseen corn God (laughs) is, is still something that's like, there's not another movie like that. And so, that has that one little seed of uniqueness that they take from the Stephen King story and then create the most like bland TV movie experience, like around that seed of an idea. But I think it's that core idea being so unusual and different that sparks the imagination and, and and probably makes the movie uh, better esteemed than it actually is in quality. So it's interesting. Director uh, George Goldsmith said after the, after it came out, that it was a metaphor for the Iranian Revolution. <laughs> yeah, what? that the evil god was based on the Khomeini uh, and the Revolutionary Guard taking over Iran. Okay. Uh, yeah. All um, right. Yeah, I don't... I mean, no. <laughs> I, if that's there, it was just in your head, dude. Yeah. I, I don't know to tell you, because I don't think anybody watched this film and went, whoa, there's a really, like delicately placed subtext here that's mm-hmm. political no other than fucking religious cults are scary and children are gross yeah <laughs> that's but my fresh corn is delicious fresh corn is delicious i mean it's like well it's actually a metaphor for how like corn syrup is replacing uh-huh. sugar and all these products and it's like making us all fat so the aliens can come eat us it's changing the kids yeah <laughs> and the effects are so bad when it gets into the part where it's like, oh, look, it's the God. You're like, wow. Okay. I mean, uh-huh. I know this is like something in the, I mean, even Ghostbusters effects look kind of terrible at points now, which was a major studio release, but this was not a major studio release and it looks horrific. Like, uh, if I had been in the, into the movie at this point, it would have taken me right out of it. I mean, I love Linda Hamilton. I'll watch her do about anything. She's great. But, she's like a damsel in distress. But here, yeah, yeah, exactly. She's like, she has really, she is not the, the rough and tough. Okay. We're going to do this hero. You know? No, she screams and is like, help me and save me. And yeah. So why is this one of the movies that, Arrow chose to do a 4K release of with a big box set and like tons and tons and tons of bonus features. You got me. You'll have to ask one of those people who actually like this film. But there is a audio commentary with the director, uh, with director, uh, a different director, Fritz 
Kirsch. I have no idea who that guy is or why he's on here, but producer Terrence Kirby and actors John Franklin and Courtney Gaines. There's another commentary with horror journalist Justin Beam and Children of the Corn historian. Someone actually claims that as a title. John Sullivan. There's a retrospective uh, pro- produced by Arrow called Harvesting Horror. Uh, I'm sorry, produced by Anchor Bay from the previous release on here. There's another Anchor Bay produced featurette, which is an interview with with uh, Linda Hamilton. <laughs> I love. I'm reading. I always. I, I use a lot of the time Blu-ray.com just for the com to mm-hmm. be able to quickly reference what the stuff is like on the extra features because there's often with Arrow stuff a lot. And there's like she seems to waffle between, hey, it was a job, and how did I get myself into this one. <laughs> <laughs> There's an and a child sh- shall lead them interviews with uh, some of the kid actors field of nightmares interview with the writer Stephen King on a shoestring which is not an interview with Stephen King as you might think but an interview with pro- the producer uh, welcome to Gatlin interviews with the production designer and composer return to Gatlin featuring John Sullivan hosting the filming locations John Sullivan children of corn his story. I hope he doesn't actually have that on his LinkedIn profile. I hope. Uh, I, here's uh, what I hope. I hope uh, it supports him. You know, I hope that he makes enough money as a children of the corn historian that that's what he can tell people like when he meets people. And they're right. like, you know, he's at like a mixer and it's like, what do you do? I'm in finance. What do you do? Oh, I'm a historian. I'm a children of the corn historian. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why not? Yeah. I mean, like I have a friend who has literally been labeled, given the official title by the Robert E. Howard estate of like the official like Robert E. Howard, premier expert in the world. And like, so people, anytime they're like, people contact the estate about stuff, they're like, talk to him. <laughs> I'm like, that's a thing. Everybody's got to have a gig. Yeah. That's his. And for John Sullivan, it's Children of the Corn Historian. Uh, there's Cut from the Cornfield, which is actor Rich Kleinberg uh, talking about a lost scene. Uh, storyboard galleries, trailers, and then the only thing I actually watched on here, because I was curious, there was a short film that was about a little under 20 minutes, adaptation of the King story that came out before a year before this, uh, Disciples of the Crow. I was like, oh, uh, I'm real curious because the story is indeed pretty different than the movie. And it's just basically like the opening scenes. Uh, you know, it's it's not that different from the opening scenes of this movie with the car accident. There's just a lot more crows in it. <laughs> because <laughs> the movie is caw Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow that was, that was the sort of thing i expect from me not you i <laughs> don't know what to make of that all right well, we're gonna move on to our next film which is a brand new release also available on 4k but on blu-ray from universal studios the forever purge i did in fact review this one when it came out in the theater because i am a shameless fan of the purge series i like i have actually liked all of the purge movies although i thought the last one was the one with like oh great idea it's but doesn't totally work had a great lead like this lead you're like man i'll watch that guy in anything but the rest of the movie was "Eh, where's frank grillo bring back frank grillo well they didn't bring back frank grillo but they decided to go on to well where is the story going because like we get it the purge happens every year shit goes down uh the for 24 for for one night all law laws are off the book. So you can do whatever you want. So people go out and murder and, and it was established in the last film that, Oh, well then when they first did the purge, nobody was doing anything. They were like, Oh, well they're just doing drugs and shit. They're not killing each other. And the goal is for poor people to kill each other. So the government set in people to like pretend they're just regular citizens and start the murder train a rolling. And so this is the last movie in the con- continuity of here. It was delayed uh, a bit because of COVID, but uh, it came out in July, 
And the story is basically eight years after Charlene Roan uh, got elected president, the new founding fathers of America, which is the 1984 type group, they've regained control back from her over the U.S. government. They've reinstituted the purge with its original rules. And of course, everything is, you know, gone to as crazy as it usually does, except this film focuses itself on uh, right on this side of the border and it deals with, I mean, clearly the the message of this one is like they're all very political films, but this one is like, we're not handling this whole immigrants in America thing very well <laughs> as it follows a uh, married migrant couple as they illegally cross over to Texas, uh, the border to Texas, uh, working near Austin. You know, where is that? I don't know where that is. And uh, and then it falls like a couple months later, the, the purge is going to happen. And there's a migrant community that's very organized where they have a walled sanctuary. They've hired armed security to protect them. Uh, but of course, nothing goes the way that they really want them to. And it ends up with I think it's kind of hysterical with groups of people, including just regular white Americans going, we're going to have to illegally immigrate, immigrate to Mexico (laughs) to survive the now. I'm sorry. Did we say the purge was over? Well, the American citizens have changed their mind and now every day is the purge. I mean, you don't have to look very close to see this guy is very keen on getting across his political message, but anybody's complaining about it in this one. I'm like, did you watch any of the other purge films? Because they're all that way. No, I did not watch any of the other. <laughs> you have purge not. Films. Okay, this is maybe the most overt, but they're all. It's you can't not call any of them not overt because of, you know what the whole story is. You know, I know that you told me already this was not really your thing, but I I thought this was a solid entry in the purge franchise overall. I had fun with it again, especially when they finally get to like a city on the border and it's just like there's tanks and fucking like people with rocket launchers. I mean, it's like full blown well, war. That brings up a point is like this. These are I don't there's like a misalignment between the reality of what the movie is and where it's marketed because they're marketed like or this one is marketed like a horror film mm. and it's an action it's, movie. It's not. It's a it's straight up action like movie. It was yeah. an action movie. Yeah. I mean, there's parts. There's a few jump scares here and there yeah. that are really cheap jump scares. Like things like, oh, it, well, what is that? Oh, it's just the sun who ran ahead in a tunnel and but then came like back. It's like action movies. You know? They sell specifically to a horror crowd. Yeah. Which is odd. And because this is far from even the goriest one in the series, mm. but it is straight up a, a political action film. And I would say... Although they all have aspects of that, this is the one that most decidedly yeah, a, I would go chase. It's isn't like a horror film anymore. They're being chased across the the border. You know, everybody's trying to escape America while these guys are keeping the purge going. So this is my first one. I have not been attracted to these movies to be able to seek them out and want to watch them on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of have the first one was kind of like. Um, sold with this like winking nudging sort of like don't you wish that there was a day where you could do anything you wanted and and i'm kind of like i may be too optimistic a person like i fundamentally disagree with the thought that if there are no laws people would just randomly just start shooting and killing each other and so i was kind of like this doesn't look like it philosophically aligns with me so i'm just gonna leave it where it is and not touch it um so i sat down to watch this one um things that i expected uh, I expected more rape. Uh, there was no, there was, there was a little Thankfully. bit of like sexual assault as they drove by scenes of sexual assault. Right. But I expected there to be, I expected there to be like a litany of ugly things that people do to each other. Really, it was just like kind of just shoot at each other. And that's yeah. What, um, so I was, I was surprised that it never got that ugly. Mm-hmm. Um, it still wasn't really for me, uh, you know, but it wasn't. 
like it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be in the ways that I thought it would be bad, which would just be like a a punishing like two hours of people screaming, crying while other people like do horrible things, do horrible them. things, right? No, so, but it's really, and as you said, it's a chase movie, it's a war movie, yeah, it's an action movie. It's not a horror film, except for the context of like. You know, is there really that much hatred in America is the is the thing that he wants you to ask yourself, like, do you feel comfortable living in a country where people just hate people because of the color of their skin that much for this film specifically? It's also filled with character actors, which is kind mm-hmm. of weird. Like, that was something I didn't expect because they didn't even the trailers didn't play up the fact that this thing is like loaded with recognizable faces. Yeah, Josh Lucas is one of them. Uh, Will Patton, who I'm yeah. str- I really have decided lately, man, I like Will Patton a lot. They should put him in more stuff with bigger, more prominent roles, because he always plays the guy, you're like, oh, I love that guy, and then they kill him. And you're like, yeah. damn it, why'd you kill off Will Patton? I never felt lost. Somebody, somebody was like, kind of, I don't remember who it was, but somebody on Twitter was like, how can you be expected to review the fifth in a series and not have watched a single one of them and all that kind of stuff? And I'm like, there was never a point where I was watching the movie it's going not confusing. like, what? What is a purge? It was like, <laughs> I have a basic understanding of what yeah. the purge is, and the movie's like, oh, the sirens go off, and the purge... It's like, I know what the purge is through pop culture osmosis. Like, yeah. I don't... You know, and I've seen the trailers. It's not the confusing, ones. yeah. Yeah, there was never a single moment in the film where I was like, what? So the first film is kind of a spare home invasion film, yeah. right, uh, The with the political message. And I think that was the thing. A lot of people over the length of the next three films are kept going, you know, I mean, obviously this is being very hyperbolic and exaggerated near sometime in the near future. But a lot of people kept saying, would things really get that bad? You know, I mean, I expect there'd be some bad, but I don't know about on this level. And that's why they made the previous one to go like oh well because the government stirred up hatred and racism intentionally to try and make people like go oh well the only way to survive is to be aggressive mm-hmm. anyway uh but i will say the second and third film in the series are really good they're like the ones with frank grillo and they're straight up john carpenter action movies you yeah. know like a horror action and i i'd say those are the ones that if you're gonna watch any of the purge just skip straight to those two because they are really good time but uh this one if you already are a purge fan and i am i say yeah sure i mean it's it's another purge film it's better than the last one it's not as good as as the the pre- two before it but it's well we're seeing there's an alternate opening storyboard sequence there's a single deleted scene there is collapsing the system behind the forever purge for eight minutes which is you know talking about how hard it was to do a purge story that most of it takes place in daylight because the rest of them they're all at nighttime, which of course makes doing effects and stuff considerably easier. So doing it like in the bright Texas and Mexico sun, a little bit different. Uh, it talks about, you know, how a lot of the film is told in Spanish, what have you. There's creeptastic wardrobe, a look at the scary costumes, because all purgers tend to wear very elaborate sort of monster costumes and what have you. And then there's the trailer. Well, let's move on to something that I know you didn't get to recently see, but you are at least somewhat familiar with from your childhood. And that is Kolchak, the night stalker, Mm. uh, which I have, this is another thing much like dementia 13. That's been on my bucket list to watch forever because I was a gigantic fan of the X-Files. Like I've watched the entirety of the X-Files with the exception of the two new, you know, much after the fact seasons. I've only watched those once, but all the rest I've watched like three times, at least several episodes gone back and watched. I don't even know how many times. So huge fan. I've even been published in a book about the X-Files, oh, wow. writing an essay about it. And the creator, Chris Carter, would always say this all comes from Kolchak the Night Stalker, which is this series that aired on ABC for one year. But before that, there were two movies that were made that were actually 
uh, record breakers for ABC at that time of like most successful like television movies they had put out at that point. And like, I guess we should do a series with this actor, Darren McGavin. So Carter going, yeah, if you want to understand what the X-Files is, you have to watch this. But it wasn't largely accessible anywhere for a long time. So it was always like, man, I hope somebody puts out a box set someday. Well, here we go. Because Kino has put out a box set of the 20 episodes that made up the actual TV series. Why they didn't include those two theatrical movies here is a big, huh? Because they just published them separately, like, less than a year ago. They put them out on Blu-ray. So I'm like, you clearly have the rights. Why wouldn't you just make this one and everything box set? Or maybe their plan is to release that again later as everything. So I've still not watched those first two movies. But I will say... Carl Kolchak, who is a uh, wire service reporter, he's always wearing the same outfit, which is kind of dowdy, out of style fashion. He is not very well liked at his uh, job, which is not surprising because he's sent out to, you know, cover this new, real news story and like, but there are vampires and sea monsters and stuff. And then his stories never end up getting published. And you're like, has he ever actually published anything at this paper? Because <laughs> every time it's a supernatural thing that happens. But it's really kind of delightful, actually, that he is very funny. The show is very sly and has a good sense of humor about itself. Uh, the plots even take twists I didn't see coming at points. And this is a 70s network television series. And, of course, there had been, to some degree, Monster Hunter stuff. But this is kind of the one that's looked at as the one that set the mold for all Monster Hunter shows going forward, of which there are... So many, you know, Supernatural, The X-Files, Grimm, you name it, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, I thought this was just fun, man. I, I marathoned my way through it. I didn't get all the way to the end just for time, but I got about 15 episodes through. And I was like, yeah, next one, next one. What was your favorite episode? Uh, you know, that is a good question, actually, John, because there I go back and forth. But I think there's one that was a Haitian zombie episode. Yeah, that was really cool because it was it was the only one out of all of them. Is like this is actually scary. Like there's a sequence where he's got to like climb inside this sort of abandoned car at like a uh, a what do you call it like a, a junkyard that's mm -hmm. up on top of a bunch of other cars that has this really scary looking huge zombie in there. And the, the the only way to kill them is when they're not currently being called by the Voodoo, the, the controller, they're sort of basically unconscious, not working. Yeah. So you have to fill their mouth up with salt and then sew it shut. Like I said, these are not George Romero zombies is the Haitian type. And the thing, you know, it calls him in the middle of him doing it. And he's literally like sandwiched into this car, having climbed into the back of this like old station wagon with it. And it's a really scary moment. And yeah, that was really cool. But there's a lot of, there's just like a lot of funny stuff. Not everything works the way they want it to work, I think. But you know, like the first episode is a, what if Jack the Ripper was despite, any explanation for it, immortal, and just kept coming back every few years <laughs> and repeating pretty much the exact same styles of kill across the world, which you know, everybody loves that kind of Jack the Ripper story, right? Even though they never explain how and why, for some reason, the only way to see you can stop them is electricity. Like, none of this is ever even attempted to be dealt with. It just is. Don't worry about it, dude. <laughs> it's, but there's so much stuff that you're like, oh, that's where they got that from in the X-Files, including even the font they use for the titles is like exactly the font from the X-Files, and I'm like, well, there you go. Nice. <laughs> Do you, I know it's been a while since you've seen this, but did you have any fond oh, memories of it? Gosh, I I barely touched it. So it was it was on Netflix. Uh, back when Netflix first started streaming, it was one of their offerings. Uh, 
and I maybe watched one. So and it's been and it's been over ten years, so I couldn't really tell. Fair you. enough. Well, this is. I liked been, it. They, I remember that they've remastered this into two K, and it looks great. I was like, wow, this is. Like a lot of the time, I when I get these you know seventies or or earlier TV releases, there's like a lot of grit in it and everything. But whoever did this really cleaned it up, and they look and sound great. And there's a lot of great guest stars like Scatman Carruthers, Tom Skerritt, Dick Van Patten, Jamie Farr, Phil Silvers, Kathy Lee Crosby, Tom Bosley. I know for you young ones, you're like, I don't know who a single one of those people are, except for maybe Scatman Crothers, because we all love The Shining. But yeah. uh, but there are um, new interview with David Chase. Oh, yeah, that's another thing. David Chase, who created The Sopranos, this was his first big gig. And he wrote, uh, he's listed as co-writer of eight of these, but apparently, from what I've read, he pretty much wrote the bulk of these straight up, that this was kind of his baby. Oh. Which is interesting, right? But anyway, he does an interview with this. There's an interview with that I thought was great with uh, Dana Gould, the comedian who also created the show Stand Against Evil, who just comes on and talks non-jokingly about how great, how much the show meant to him growing up and how much he loved it and why it was influential. There's a booklet with an essay uh, by the author of the Night Stalker Companion and wrote a Kolchak novel, Grave Secrets. I didn't even know there was one. Uh, there are audio commentaries for the bulk of the episodes in here by any number of different people people, uh, film, filmmakers, historians, uh, Kim Newman, of course, who you can't keep away from doing commentary on, on uh, Blu-ray re-releases of things, apparently, even if it's not Arrow. And there's a bunch of TV spots that were originally done for uh, the episodes, which those are always, 70s TV spots are always funny. Anyway, yeah, great set. Highly recommend it. If you've never watched, if you like the X-Files and you've never seen Kolchak the Night Stalker, you should see Kolchak the Night Stalker. And we're going to move on to the Universal Monsters Collection in 4K. Icons of Horror. You know, it's funny with this one because I got it kind of late, but it was also close to the release date and it was Halloween. I was like, ooh, I really want to cover this. I was like, shit, how am I going to get this to John? And then I thought, wait a minute. John's seen all of these movies like 800 times. <laughs> and by the time we recorded today, I finally I picked up Dracula and Invisible Man in 4K. Oh, fair So enough. now I have them all. I oh, had Frankenstein okay. for a while. For some reason, Voodoo released the 4K before the home video version was out. So mm-hmm. they they existed for a little while. But yeah, I ended up picking, up, uh, I ended up picking them all up and watching... Uh, at least enough to be able to talk about the picture quality. But yes, I've seen these. With the exception of Invisible Man, which I've only seen... Uh, strangely enough, I've only seen Invisible Man once. That'll probably be one that I'll go back to before Halloween this year. Okay. Um, but all the others I've seen tons of times. Well, and this is the most spare of any of the Universal re-release sets. Like, I mean, I have the previous two they did. I have the one they put the the really nice Universal Blu-ray collection that has, like, I think eight or nine of them in there. Yeah. And then I have the literally every Universal horror movie set on DVD, which is, like exhaustive, uh, which apparently is worth a lot now because that was the last time and the first time for a long time that some of those rarer films had even been released. So I'm like, oh, I guess I will be keeping that for a while. And still in the plastic even because I had all the ones I wanted to watch were on the Blu-ray set. But here we've got Dracula and then there's the Spanish version of Dracula, which is often sadly overlooked because it, it was filmed right after they finished filming Dracula on the same set using the same costumes and the same props with largely the same script, but with a different director and different stars. And a lot of people think that that version is better than the Bela Lugosi version. I don't know if you, if you, I think that it's more polished, but I don't think that it's better. Okay. That's my, that's my two cents about it. Cause I had heard that as well. There's also, I believe I, I had read or had heard that they were able to watch what 
Browning was doing. Mm -hmm. Like they were able to see the dailies or see what was happening on set and basically go, we're going to do ours this way. And then when they would film specifically film things differently based on what they had already seen Browning do. Um, Mm. I, I think it's, it is more polished. It doesn't feel, they're, they they both feel old, but Dracula feels very early thirties. Like Mm -hmm. Dracula feels like, you know, we're talking about an era in which they're still defining what talking moving pictures are, much less horror movies. Um, and the Spanish one is just more polished, but there's something about the there's something about the creakiness of Browning's version that I just prefer it. I think okay. it's it's slightly stranger than the Spanish language one. And then you of course get James Whale's classic Frankenstein. Although the big question here is like the in my mind, the single best of the Universal Horrors is Bride of Frankenstein. And I think that's a widely held belief, the sequel to this. And it's not here. It was not one of the... I was like, why did you choose to upgrade in 4K the Spanish Dracula instead of choosing to upgrade Bride of Frankenstein? I think because if you think about it, next year will probably be Creature, Mummy, Bride, and I don't know what fills they'll, that fourth spot. Yeah, they'll, yeah. they'll pro- maybe Return of the Creature, even though that's not a very good movie. Ugh. But it does have an uncredited Clint Eastwood in it probably for like 10 seconds. Probably Frankenstein Wolfman. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I maybe. I'm all for just straight-up Universal Monsters versus Abbott and Costello set in 4K. Yeah. I would watch all of that. Yeah. Uh, then we get The Invisible Man, the aforementioned Invisible Man that John hasn't hasn't seen in a while. I haven't seen, yeah. Uh, I, I've, I watched it last year for the first time. Um, but hmm. So it's been recently, but I just haven't watched them as many, as many times. I haven't watched it as many times. Uh, and then The Wolfman, of course, which as a kid was my favorite of these. My least favorite. Yeah, it's funny. Watching it now, I'm like, yeah, I don't like this one as much as I used to, for sure. But it, I, I remember as a little kid, I was very taken with The Wolfman. Still taken with werewolf pictures, for the yeah. record. And I think that's partially because there are just so few actual good ones, you know? I, I've always preferred... I realize, like, The Wolfman has its fans, and this is blasphemous. <laughs> I've always preferred Werewolf of London. I think yeah. it's I think it's a bleaker movie with a darker ending, and I, I dig it more. I also like the weird sci-fi botanical plant stuff that's in that movie. I don't know. Hmm. I like where I prefer Werewolf of London to, to the Wolfman. I think it's, I think it's creepier. Um, that's me. That is a hot take, John. That is a hot take, but I'm dishing seen... out the hot takes of movies from 1930. I can't even remember the last <laughs> time I saw werewolf of London. So I'll have to go back and find a copy oh, so and good. revisit it. So good. Yeah. But the, the main selling point here is just that these films argue as much as you want about what they should have included and what they shouldn't have are a tremendous upgrade, even from the Blu-ray into 4k. And, uh, you know, I know people often go, why would I even, why do 4k for films that weren't even filmed on that type of stock? It really does. When they do a good job and they give it the love, you can tell why when you watch one, like, Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. And I think 4k black and white films, especially really pop because of the, uh, the upgrade out of the four. I think my favorite transfer, because having looked at them all, I think my favorite transfer might be the invisible man's transfer Mm -hmm. overall. I think the one that benefits the the most from 4K, just in regards to the, the quality upticks, is probably at this point Frankenstein, because I feel mm. like the Dracula Blue looked pretty good. Yeah. Um, so I feel like, in, in, in just in regards of the upgrade, Frankenstein, but just in regards of the overall picture quality, uh, Invisible Man looked really slick. Well, I mean, even like the last, the Blu-ray set, you could see still some of the print damage and specs mm. on, on uh, like the big ones, like the Wolfman and what have you, but they've largely fixed that here 
Uh, so this is no question the best version that exists. Um, these are with the DTS HD 2.0 master audio mono tracks, of course, uh, which I believe are exactly the same one on the, the, the Blu-ray set. And then there's audio commentaries on, on these. There's uh, Dracula has the alternate score by Philip Glass performed by the Kronos Quartet, which is actually the way I prefer to watch it. Just saying. And uh, there's a intro- four-minute introduction from actor Lupita Tovar Koner in which she talks about her experiences working on the Spanish version of Dracula. Uh, there's the Road to Dracula, 35-minute uh, featurette uh, with the niece of Universal founder Carl Lamb, where uh, she and various film historians and filmmakers talk about Dracula. And you know what? This, suffice it to be said, there's a lot. Every single one of these discs is packed with stuff. It's largely just the stuff that was on the previous Blu-ray sets. But, you know, the the main thing that you're getting here is that the upgrade is worth the price if these are films that every October you're like, all right, let's do this. Let's watch these again. We're going to move on to another 4K upgrade, which I was very impressed with the transfer on. And maybe that's because the said transfer was actually being overseen by the the number one guy in the world outside of like the ghost of Stanley Kubrick. The number one children of the corn historian (laughs) in the world. (laughs) No, but this is like, this guy's got real credit here who uh, was Stanley Kubrick's you know, his right-hand man, who originally was one of the stars of the movie, Barry Lyndon, and then went, I don't really want to act anymore. I want to just work for you, Stanley Kubrick, and do whatever needs doing. So this guy, who now I'm like, had his name right in front of me and now I'm blanking, but they made a, a film about him called Film Worker that's just tremendously good and I think the most insightful film about the works of Stanley Kubrick from the viewpoint of this guy who was his best friend and number one assistant. Well, he was the guy who came in and oversaw this 4K upgrade to A Clockwork Orange because you want to get the best for a movie a lot of people think is Stanley Kubrick's best. I I have a hard time picking just one, but I do love A Clockwork Orange. And a lot of times with movies like this that I've seen so many times, I'll be like, I don't need to rewatch this. I like I know it by heart. And this is one like, it's Clockwork Arts in 4K. I'm going to fucking watch it on 4K. Yeah. And I just, I was like, maybe I'll just watch 20 minutes just to see how the print is. And then I just watched the whole thing straight through. I'm like, cause the sound is fantastic. Like, I mean, the, the picture quality is just a significant improvement over the last one. I, this movie could never have been made today because it's deeply disturbing. It is maybe the most triggering film ever made in history. Uh, and it has, but it has a lot to say. It's not done just for gratuitousness. It's done because we're actually talking about real stuff here. And sometimes you got to shock the system to wake people up was Kubrick's point of view on this. I think, uh, it's always been controversial about Kubrick's decision to leave out the final chapter, which was not published until well after the original publishing of the book, but had been published by the time they started working on this because his, feeling about it was that this is just which was also the feeling of the american publisher who initially cut that chapter was that yeah i feel like this kind of doesn't work with everything that came before because it's kind of the redemption of the malcolm mcdowell character and you don't that would feel i feel like that would ring false mm-hmm. i don't know I, I don't even know how john golson feels about a clockwork orange i am not 100 percent sure how i feel about it from a uh, from a socio-political standpoint. Um, when I first saw this movie, I was in my um, early 20s, and I, I leaned way more right-wing then. Hmm. And the messages that I got from the movie were in line with why I thought at the time I was 
more conservative than liberal, which was this idea of like personal accountability and the government being the person who tells you right from wrong, Mm -hmm. which was like a big talking point in the late nineties, early two thousands about, uh, you know, censorship and things like, like the government shouldn't be telling you like what your kids can and can't do. Right. I mean, Rush Limbaugh carried that thread through into the Obama stuff where it's like, how dare Michelle Obama try to feed our kids healthy foods at the schools. Right. The kids should decide whether or not they want Cheetos or celery. You know, it's (laughs) like kids always make the best decisions. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Uh, My politics have changed since then. And, I found then that this movie did not, uh, whereas before I may have seen it more black and white, I feel like there were things that were brought up that weren't necessarily answered definitively. And I I don't think that it's wrong for a film to ask questions and not answer them. Mm -hmm. I don't think that it's wrong for a film to make you, uh, some people, some people want a film, if a film brings up questions, they, they will not like it if the film doesn't answer those questions. Right. I don't think Clockwork Orange answers a lot, but I think it asks a lot and uh, yeah. then gets your gears going as to what what you think of it and how you consider About, it. Yeah, and I think if they had had that extra ending where, oh, you know, Alex is, is forgiven largely and, like, is actually becomes a productive member of society and a normal person, then this w- movie would be considered a right-wing film, mm. I think. Uh, but as it is, it, I don't know, man, it, 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 you're right. It asks a lot of questions and it's very political, but it's really like, I think if it's saying anything, it's like, this is a complicated issue. This is really a complicated issue. Like we're not at the point we can reprogram people <laughs> the way this film sets it up to be done. But I, you know, <sighs> It, it is asking things about, like, what is the point of a crime, someone committing a crime, where we can consider them rehabilitated? And what would that rehabilitation look like, anyway? There's also a lot of, like, I mean, for a movie that was made decades ago, it's either a problem that I wasn't witness to because I wasn't born yet, or it's prescient in its addressing of, like... You see these guys, these these uh, white male killers that go into a place and, and tear a place up just for the heck of it because they want to. Mm. And a lot of times they're from completely happy, regular homes. And you see in this movie the fact that his his mother really does love him, but there's sort of like this unconditional love, hands-off approach to Alex that's like, we love him so much we let him do what he wants and make his own decisions and it leads right. him to be completely consequence free and reckless and like right. and a psychopath basically like destroy other people's lives without like a trace of empathy and you see that reflected back very very often maybe that's maybe that was also happening societally then but it just wasn't happening with the frequency cuz now it feels like there's there's an Alex in the news cycle every quarter yeah um so I, I don't know. Um, I think that I think it's certainly something that keeps it relevant even today. I think the fact that it still feels transgressive for a movie made decades ago that's not only made decades ago but was a hit too. Because that's the other thing that's crazy to me is like we had this time not that long ago where it's like people would go see movies that were like a challenge to their thinking Mm -hmm. and the draw of the box office was 
oh, this is all people are talking about, and so I'm yeah. going to sit down and see it so I can join the conversation. Yeah, like a and Straw like Dogs a, is another one I yeah, think Yeah, and of. that's like a selling point of the movie, and it's like people would go see what now would be considered like extreme or hardcore transgressive cinema, and it's like, this was a hit. Like, this was a... this, And it stuck around, and it's like, it still is more transgressive than, you know, movies that have come out in the past, like, I mean, yeah. 30 years. It's like... It is very confrontational, yeah. no question. And I think that part of its transgressiveness is just that, as we were saying, it refuses to answer these questions mm-hmm. because there are no answers to these questions. Yeah. It's just it's it's a tough it's a tough situation, and it confronts its audience with the violence so directly. It wants to engender your your anger and disgust, and then wants you to also feel sympathy for this guy as he's going the same person who committed these horrors later as he's going through the these this horrible rehabilitation and everybody's beating up on him i it's difficult too i think the the icon is like it's kind of become like a very iconic film and because it's become iconic the iconography gets translated into things like Funko Pops and like yeah in a weird toys a way that and stuff. And i was thinking about that about. while i was watching it going like this has really been packaged and sold back to us in a way that's yeah. completely at odds with what the content of the film actually is. Yeah, no, you're absolutely correct. I mean, like, Jesus, didn't, weren't there, like, yeah, there were droogs in the fucking last Looney Tunes movie. Yeah. You're like, what? There was a Looney Tunes movie <laughs> with characters from A Clockwork Orange in it. Yeah. Uh, Kubrick, it, I don't know if he was cremated, but if he wasn't, he's rolling over in his <laughs> grave, I'm certain. There is a, uh, this is just the same extras that were on both of the previous releases here, which is an audio commentary with Malcolm McDowell and Nick Redman, still ticking the return of a clockwork orange, uh, great bullshit yar blockos making a clockwork orange, turning like clockwork, I don't know, they're just like various little the featurettes on the, on the making of it, which I, I watched these all when I think I get the Blu-ray release came out of this, and I was like, I like them all, but I still felt like they could have been in more in-depth and better because I think there is just no end of things that you could conversations and different takes on this movie that you could have. And I, I kind of wish they had gotten a little more on into that side of it. I care less about like, here's how we made the costumes than I yeah. do about like, let's talk about the diet. Let's have a dialogue about what this movie is actually saying. But if you talk about what it's actually saying, then you can't sell uh, <laughs> Funko pops. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's true. Another 4k release that's uh, just coming out is Inglorious bastards. Quentin Tarantino's at that point, I believe his most successful film when it came out in 2009, uh, financially. And it was a, it was a major hit. Uh, it was nominated for a bunch of Oscars even. Uh, and, and it won Kansas, uh, best actor award for Christoph Waltz, uh, as, among many other, uh, he got he got Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. It was sort of most of our introduction to Christoph Waltz yeah. uh, playing the sort of main Nazi bad guy in this, unless you count Hitler, who was basically just a supporting character in the background. And I'll admit, this is the first, I think this is the first Tarantino movie I walked out of going, you know, there's a lot of stuff I like about it, but it didn't work. I just thought this was a huge mess of scenes that all follow the exact same thing, largely, up until the third act, which is, Here's a sequence that's very, very tense. And it's going to go on uncomfortably long. Not because you're feeling more and more tense, but the point you're kind of fidgeting to get out of there. And boy, you're like, oh my God, these are just people talking in a tense situation. And then it erupts into brutal violence. And that's every scene in this movie. And this is just kind of a collection of those sequences happening one after another that sometimes deal with Brad Pitt and his inglorious bastards with the 
really weird casting of uh, Eli Roth as the bear Jew, <laughs> you know, because for one thing, like it's this giant Jew and Eli Roth's not that, that, was the that part big. That, that was the part that for years Tarantino said was for Adam Sandler. Well, yeah. Yeah. Just like uh, Hugo Stiglitz was for Schwarzenegger. Like uh, Melanie Laurent, this was my introduction to her, I yeah, think, largely. And, and Daniel I, Brohl as well. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. I mean, some really good actors were brought into the American, uh, you know, conversation. Fat Michael Fassbender, this is one of his earlier big yeah. roles. Uh, Diane Kruger, a big early role for her. You know, I'm not going to go too much into what the plot is here, much like with Clockwork Orange. At this point, I figure you've probably already seen Inglorious <laughs> Bastards. Someone's listening to Digital Noise, and they're like, I haven't seen it. <laughs> <laughs> What's it about? <laughs> It's it's a fantasy in which we killed Hitler. <laughs> and I think that took me out of it, too, because even though the whole thing is kind of silly, they, like, literally just brutally blow to, like, his component pieces, Hitler. And I'm like, wait, what? Uh, oh, okay, so this is just Tarantino having a fantasy about what if we were able to kill Hitler. But then it, like, kills almost everybody else, too. And I'm like, I just... you having a non-historically based obviously because that's not how hitler died hitler death is not enough to make up for the fact that i watch these characters go through all this shit only to die all to a person almost ignominiously as hell <laughs> i loved this when i saw it theatrically and i have had the most difficult time watching it a second time hmm. um and i i don't know why but if i if i try to put my finger on it it's that i think that there are scenes in which they don't you don't know that they don't serve a lot of purpose until they've played through so when you're watching it the first time you're kind of taking the scenes at face value and enjoying them yeah and getting on to the next scene or whatever and then when you're watching it a second time and you hit say a great example of this is the mike myers mm-hmm. fassbender scene and it's like in retrospect that scene is uh, completely it's very long and it's completely unnecessary yeah i mean especially considering they almost immediately in the next scene kill off michael fassbender and there was literally no reason for him to ever have been part of this plot they in the have first a, place. mike myers and fassbender have a 10 minute scene about the fact that fassbender used to write movie reviews for a german magazine so that tarantino can name drop german <laughs> movies from the period yeah and it's like when you're watching it the first time you assume that that is going to enrich some information further down the line because you haven't seen the movie yet there's no rearview mirror to look at Mm -hmm. and like upon revisiting there were a lot of scenes that were just like like i i don't know if it is the best for the pacing of this three-hour behemoth of a movie (laughs) Yeah, yeah i've had such a difficult time watching it a second time and i don't really know why I would like to say that I still love the movie because I did when I saw it in theaters. Mm. Like I have good memories of being like, that was great. Like that was terrific. And every time I've tried to watch it on home video, I'm just home video. Like I'm from 1984. <laughs> every time I, but that's what it is. Yeah. I'm every sure Tarantino I, yes. watches it on home um, video. <laughs> every time I've tried to watch it at home, it just, it just is not the same experience. Mm. I can barely make it through the movie. And I, and I, I hate saying that. Cause like, I don't not like the movie, but I just it's it it's hard to sit through a second time, and I don't know why. So, For me, the, so this on 4K was my third time actually watching this all the way through. Okay. First in the theater, second when it came out originally on on Blu-ray, and now 
the 4K, and it's been quite a while since the, the right. last release. It's been a while since I've seen this, and I probably I think I I enjoy it more now than I did when I initially saw it. Um, but I'm that much more capable now of like sitting back and going, well, this is why I didn't like this movie as much of a lot of, as a lot of other people did. Uh, that con- like I said, the construction of it I think is. Ever since Tarantino's editor died, all his films have had that problem, kind of, where you're like, there's a bunch of stuff that there's absolutely no reason for them this to be in here, and it's just eating up screen time of an already unwieldily long screen time. Uh, this has been in everything he's done since Inglorious Bastards. I would say even since Kill Bill Volume 2, mm-hmm. it's been an issue. They're just, there's no one there to go, this doesn't belong here. This is just masturbatory. Get rid of that. Uh, like you said, you could have easily gotten rid of the whole Michael Fassbender storyline in here. And there was no reason for us to suffer through Mike Myers putting on his British accent again as as this uh, British commander. That was yeah absolutely intolerable, even watching again this time. It really takes you out of the film, that specific scene. It, it's easy to point at. I mean, there's other scenes that are also kind of like, uh, that are sort of that way. But that one in particular is just like, it it takes you out of the movie because you're like, could they not? You're like, oh, that's Mike Myers. Could they not find a British person? I mean, like, all that being said, this movie does a lot of things that you don't expect to happen because, like I said, it's just it kind of feels like he was like making it up as he went along. Sometimes <laughs> this the plot elements are like, oh, but what if this happened here? Mm-hmm. You know, he's not following any real traditional structure at all. And that is interesting. It has some incredibly strong performances like Christoph Waltz just if I had hated every single thing about the rest of this film, which I did not, but if I had, I still would have gone, God damn, that guy is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> he just, he is the most likable Nazi ever to be on film. <laughs> <laughs> Yet still totally hateable, but you hate him more because you kind of like him too. Anyway, uh, yeah, this, the 4K it looks tremendous. It is a great upgrade for sure. Um, this is only the, the same original audio track, the DTS HD Master Audio 5.1 lossless soundtrack they used on Blu-ray, but it was considered to be pretty perfect when it came out the way it was. So it's like, why mess with it? And then uh, you got almost all the supplemental content from the 2009 Blu-ray. I think the only thing they left off was the um, D-Box functionality, which who really used that shit anyway? And the uh, Killing Nazis Trivia Challenge, but this comes with the Blu-ray as well, so it is on there. Have you ever met anyone that has D-Box at home? No. No, like, not a single person. I mean, we live in Austin, and at least I can I can think of at least what, like like our friend Luke would have D box at home. You think of anybody? Out of would. Anybody would? Yeah, and He'd he doesn't. Have one seat dedicated to like oh, I've got my D box chair. As far as I know, he does not. No, so, he does not have D box. But if anyone was has anyone out there actually bought D box outside I, I of like it's billionaires? Like, yeah, I was gonna say I picture it just being like. NBA stars and like things like that that are like here's my home theater room and I've got a D box seat. Like, but there is one new extra here uh, for this, which is a roundtable discussion with Quentin Tarantino, Brad Pitt, and Elvis Mitchell, who's a critic I uh, always have really, even if I don't always agree with him, I find him very insightful and he's extremely pl- pleasant to just listen to. He's like a really great interviewer. So that's like a thirty minute interview with uh, those guys. So if you're a big fan of this film, then think by far. You know, the bonus features, which are already pretty good, and the uptick in quality for the visuals makes this all really a worthwhile package. Well, uh, a thing that you only got to look at in the last day or two, I don't know if you even had time, was the Ultimate Richard Pryor Mm. Collection by Time Life. I watched a little bit of JoJo Dancer and was shocked and appalled that in the... Because for some reason, I thought that movie came out in the 70s, not the 80s. I cannot believe... 
that wired the John Belushi film, uh-huh. that that wasn't sued out of the freaking water for copying the structure of JoJo. Oh, really? It's been so long since I've seen Dude, either one. Wired is a, is them taking John Belushi's dr- drug overdosed body to the hospital, him having an out-of-body experience and remembering everything from his past because he exact like, same. walks through it. It's the exact same structure as JoJo to the point that I was like, I cannot believe. Like, And Wired was was is not is critically reviled movie so and it deserves to be reviled but i also on top of that was like oh and they ripped off jojo Dancer, your life <laughs> yeah which was i was saving the stand-up stuff for my girlfriend who loves prior and is oh, actually yeah. out of town this weekend well so. and it's a 13 disc set uh or, i'm sorry uh yeah 13 disc set so it's really big it's exhaustively complete although not with the movies the only actual feature film with prior is jojo dancer your life is calling which is about his life which is written produced and directed by him so it seemed appropriate to put in put in here there are two documentary films in here about the life of richard pryor one of which is just about an hour but the other was a more uh, high profile release but that's not really what the real appeal of the set is those things what the appeal is it's all four of richard pryor's full-length concert films live and smoking which is funny because when you watch it it's like just in some like a little barbecue place somewhere clearly it's like really cheaply filmed he's really nervous and it still is one of those it starts off like you're watching a bad comic who's like just done this a few times but it's all kind of a put on because by the halfway point he is just in gear and going into his doing characters mode and you're like god damn this guy was amazing even this early uh live in concert which was the first one i ever saw and is just endlessly terrific uh live on the sunset strip and here and now there's his 1977 nbc tv special on all four episodes of the richard Pryor show that's got like robin williams in it and uh marshall warfield sandra bernhardt uh john belushi just like like a lot of big name stars it's a very like if you've ever seen the prior episode in the first season of saturday night live it's like more of that basically uh, then there's Richard's most memorable TV appearances. So a lot of his interviews on shows like the Merv Griffin show, Dick Cavett show, uh, Johnny Carson show. There is, uh, I didn't even know this was a thing. So he made a movie with director Penelope Spheris, who did the decline of Western civilization movies and did Wayne's world amongst other things. They met kind of randomly on the campus at UCLA. Cause he was looking around to talk to a film student. It happened to be her. And he's like, I need to, I want to make a movie. And he was just kind of a young up and coming comic, but people knew who he was at this point. And they got together and made for almost nothing. This movie called uncle Tom's fairy tales. And it was pretty much completed there in the final editing when he got in a fight with his girlfriend and destroyed the film. So literally nothing else exists up until just recently when Pryor's daughter uncovered a bunch of reels of footage among his stuff. And in it, unfortunately, is not the film itself, but all the outtakes from the film. So there's a special is just like an hour long interview with Spheris, who's always charming and very funny. And has a lot of great Richard Pryor stories to tell intercut with scenes from the film that would have been the first thing that he wrote and directed which apparently we, they were just making it up day by day they were just like let's uh, i came in prior came in today here's what we're doing today and no one would have any idea uh there's a fo- exclusive footage of his final performances and a tribute event at the comedy store uh there's lots of deleted scenes and outtakes uh a interview where she's just not afraid to say everything with his widow jennifer lee Pryor, and a collector's booklet with photos diary entries tour notes this was, I was like so happy to get this. My only downside is it's on DVD, not Blu-ray, but it's about as good as DVD can look. Mm-hmm. And this is all stuff I'm like, I would like 
all of these things in my collection anyway. And I will go back and rewatch the stand-up shows multiple times because they're just legendary. I kind of wish they had put out like a bonus bonus set that also had all the CDs of like his his uh, other performances that yeah. weren't filmed because there's a bunch. And some of his early stuff is so different than the like the prior we got to know as the bigger comedian. Like he did a lot more character work where the whole show would just be like just one character talking to another character, you know? Anyway, yes, you should check. It's a hundred bucks. So if you got somebody in your family that you need to get the big Christmas present for this year that loves Richard Pryor, and why wouldn't they? He may be, he may be the greatest stand-up comedian ever. Uh, then this would be a great gift. But we're going to move on to something new, which is The Green Knight. I already reviewed this one in the theater. I was quite taken with this 2021 fantasy, medieval fantasy film written, edited, and produced and directed by David Lowry. Although, full confession, I've never been the hugest fan of David Lowry's films. I, I don't, they just, except for Ain't Them Body Saints, which I even that I was kind of mixed on. I was like, I was not looking forward to this. I'm a big fan of all things uh, King Arthur. And so on that level, I wanted to see a movie about the Green Knight, which is one of the most psychedelic of the King Arthur stories. But Lowry's always kind of left me a little cold. But I was pleased to see that this was one that, although I went, I'm going to know people who hate this. <laughs> for me, I thought it was just transcendent and beautiful, except the reveal at the end. You know, no, this is not really a spoiler because you won't know what I'm talking about. But, the, the, you know, the big thing he's searching for just turns out to be old Groot. <laughs> Uh, I didn't see this in theater, so this is first for me. Uh, I liked the trailers, but really had no idea whether or not I would like the movie. I really did like the movie. Um, and I want to try to talk about it and avoid spoilers at the same time, which is tough. I think for me, the movie started to lose me a little bit when he, uh, comes across the manor that has Owen Egerton, um... And kind of the extended, that sort of like stay, mm -hmm. which is probably about 20 minutes of the movie. Uh, it that kinda, didn't connect with you? It kind of started to lose me. And then it, and then it got me back um, towards the end. I think that when it's compared to something, let me, let me think about how to say this. Um, there's a couple things. I don't know if these are spoiler things. So like skip by 20 seconds, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, the film that it reminded me the most of in a surprising way was The Last Temptation of Christ. Hmm. Um, I can see that. Yeah, especially the way that the ending was constructed. And then the other thing was the the kind of companion piece aspect of this and a ghost story, mm -hmm. both dealing with uh, contemplation about... Uh, what life means and what death means and how that affects your overall story as a human being really tied like those two together now seem very like of a piece. Mm. It's definitely something that I think that he, as a filmmaker, he's expressing that he thinks about a lot. Um, yeah, I found it, uh, I want to say something about it, but I, again, I don't want to spoil it. And I had a hard time coming out of the theater with this one because I was like, I know I enjoyed watching that, but I'm having a hard time formulating thoughts to say about it. This is my last spoiler-esque thought. So, okay, so skip forward so again. skip Liz. five seconds. Count like one, two, three, four, five, and then come back in. I think it's oddly pro-suicide. Hmm. Um, yeah, I which, can see that too. Which was 
interesting for a film to kind of go, okay, you're faced with death, but if you live, you're going to have a miserable-ass life, so you may as well die anyways. Yeah. And I was like, that's... Um... Yeah, it, Jimmy Stewart's it at the end, you know? it. it what, what's the name of the famous Christmas movie, you know? It, well, kind, it kind of does that, and I was like, really? <laughs> I mean, in the end, I was like, I, I mean, it fits the piece, mm-hmm. but you're like, Jesus, this is fucking dark, dude. Yeah. <laughs> and I watched The Night House right after this, with, which deals with suicide, mm-hmm. and really walks right down to the point where I was like, oh, screw me. Am I about to watch two pro-suicide movies in a row? <laughs> Fortunately, Night House um, is, not as, is not as blatant as Green Knight is with this thought of like, I don't want to, it's not necessarily like pro-suicide, it's just a matter of like, yeah, maybe life's not worth living. And it's kind of like, that's a weird thought for a movie to convey. I mean, and not, and not, and convey it as an act of like, almost like a resolute heroism to go, now is the time. Right. Like, <laughs> it's, I, you know, I feel like I know people who said came out of this hating it and they were, I was like, did you not listen to anyone say even the most basic of things about this? Because this ain't King Arthur as told by Monty Python, and this ain't King Arthur as told by John Borman. This is King Arthur as told by David oh, Lowry, man. which is a very different version than you've seen and before. And I liked the little, like, <laughs> I liked how there's, like, little things that, that were, like, I liked the, like, the Valley of the Giants mm-hmm. stuff was, like... So beautiful. Was just amazing. And then the little side story about... It was very Witcher-esque, this little side story about, like, oh, my head is in the pond. Go yeah. get my head. And yeah. I was like, it's like a Witcher side quest. That's what this <laughs> is. Like, all right, I'll go get your head. You know, it's like, yeah. um, I, I really, I enjoyed it way more than I thought that I would. And that's a weird thing to say when I thought the trailer looked awesome. Yeah. It's just, the trailer looked awesome, but it also looked so artsy that I was like, this is probably going to be a complete miss for me as a viewer. And it wasn't. Yeah. That was kind of my feel about it going into it as well. Like, I don't think I'm going to like this as much as my friends will, but then I did. So, hey, it's my favorite David Lowry film. And the new 4K, or Blu-ray, if you get it that way, uh, actually comes with a cool slipcover, too, I thought. That Um, picture, dude. Looked fantastic, It's a framing issue. It's a framing, I say issue, that, that makes it sound like a problem. The way that this is framed, it's not two thirty-five to one. Mm-hmm. It's it's uh it's a full frame widescreen, so mm-hmm. it's not black barred widescreen. It's not two thirty-five to one. And typically, when you watch something two thirty-five to one, it feels very cinematic. It's a very wide vista. Mm-hmm. The framing of shots, it's it's so gorgeous. There's so much packed into the frame. It was almost like. I don't want to compare it to like having IMAX at home, <laughs> yeah. but it had that feeling of scale and of scope because of the way that shots were composed, hmm. where I was like, this might be the best, what do they call it? Like 133 to one is the aspect ratio, like right. 16, nine. I was like, this might be the best use of like a 16, nine ratio I've ever seen hmm. in regards to shot composition. Landscapes felt massive. It was gorgeous. It was absolutely gorgeous. The, the type of cool like visual film that you don't watch when you're drinking, but you might watch if you're high. <laughs> and you're a little more patient, a little more into the sort of like the appreciation of aesthetic beauty and like deep thinking in the subtext. It's that kind of movie. Uh, but don't see it if you're high and depressed. That's a bad call. 
Like, yeah. We take no responsibility at Digital Noise for <laughs> anyone who makes a bad decision after watching this movie. Uh, there's some bonus features here. Boldest of Blood and Wildest of Heart making the Green Knight for about 35 minutes, which is the featurette. Obviously, lots of interviews. Uh, practitioners of magic visual effects for about 14 and a half minutes, which is a look at how they did the FX, uh, which were done not with green screen, but by adding CGI to the live action elements, which is the way to do CG, in my opinion. Just do the practical right and then touch it up with CG. Uh, illuminating technique, title design, uh, you know, okay. Some people are really into uh, kerning, I guess. So, And then the theatrical trailer, uh, you get a digital copy as well, which I'm always happy about. I love having a big digital collection. And I know John loves that I do too. <laughs> All right, we're going to go on to our next film, which is Summer of 85. This is the French film by director... Uh, Francois Ozon, who uh, I'm sure I'm saying his last name wrong, though, O-Z-O-N. But uh, I've actually seen a number of films by this guy that I really liked, most, most especially Swimming Pool, which came out, I guess, about 10 years ago or so. But he makes thoughtful but kind of disturbing films. And Summer of 85 is funny. He described it as like, oh, it's just a carefree. I wanted to make just a fun summer movie. And then it starts with... This is a dead body, and he was my best friend, and I'm very depressed, and here's what happened. You're like, yes, what a thoughtful, fun movie you've made, Francois. <laughs> it's the summer of 85, shocker, in uh, Normandy. Uh, Alexis, played by Felix Lefebvre? Don't know. Uh, he <laughs> goes out to sea. A thunderstorm starts. He's having trouble getting back. His boat capsizes. He's rescued by David, played by Benjamin Voisin. And, uh, who's slightly older than he is. And they basically become first fast best friends and then eventually lovers. And Alexis starts getting very, very possessive of, of David, who is much more of a sort of like, whatever, man, anything goes. It's free life, free love, baby. And it causes problems. And you're wondering, knowing that he's going to die at some point. So did this kid kill him? So that's that. If there's a central mystery, it's kind of like, did he kill? this guy or not but ultimately that's not the, what the film is really con concerned with but it is you're asking yourself so what happened the whole time uh and and the guilt that happens afterwards and alex finally being freed of the worst parts of himself but only after his friend is dead um i know you didn't care for this film i actually really liked this a lot Although I thought it was going someplace very different than it was, because I, I didn't realize that this was uh, had a um, that these characters were going to be gay, which of course is not a problem. But it really looked like it was going to turn into a film where Alexis, who comes into David's life and becomes friends with him and his his widowed mother, was going to start sleeping with the mom because the mom oh. is just like all but breastfeeding this kid at this point, right when they first meet, and you're like. Okay, so like clearly this is like Summer Lovers or something, right? This is what's going to happen or or one of those 80s films that are about May-December romances between teenagers and older women. Yeah, I don't know, man. I uh I picked that up the minute that they are sort of like shirtless and just like staring at each other. It's like, okay, this is this is a young summer love. And I don't I didn't necessarily even have the frame of mind that there was like a mystery about why that character was dead. I just knew it would get around to whatever it was, that it was probably going to be something tragic. I thought this was like a, it is a, it is one of those movies where it's like <laughs> people bicycle on the coast of France and fall off their bikes and roll around on the grass and kiss and like, and steal illicit glances at each other while they take their shirts off. And like, sure. It was, it was very much like, 
like a product like Call Me By Your Name without the um, heft of the final scene from Michael Stolberg. Right. Um, it was just, yeah, it was just one of those, like, like the summer that changed my life movies. Like, mm-hmm. this was the summer and the relationship that changed my life, and I met this guy, and and we had a fling, and we went to carnivals, and we, like, it's just very, very, like, European gay romance. Uh, but there's nothing wrong with the product movie. Like, to me, that's this is, like, this is the product. And it's like an action movie being like, oh, the daughter is kidnapped, so the guy is going to go save the daughter. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's a product movie. And it's like, they they will continue to make those every day until I die. They will continue to make Let's Frolic on the Coast of France <laughs> for one fleeting summer before tragedy strikes. They will make that movie every year that's until true. the day I die. That, you're not wrong. Have you ever frolicked on the beaches of France before tragedy strikes? No, I struck? have not. I have uh, fallen in the muddy waters of Galveston. That is the closest <laughs> I've ever close. gotten to okay. frolicking. I sliced at the bottom of my foot open. Oh, Jesus. Uh, meanwhile, the person who drove me there had left and my shoes were in the car and so I bled all over oh my God. Uh, the floor of Galveston hotels trying to find a way to wrap my foot up. Oh my God. Um, no so wonder you my... don't like frolicking so, no, on the beach. Frolicking in the beach fucking sucks. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Strong anti-frolicker, John. No, this was it, this was what it was. It's it's you know it's well executed product, the same as like a Hallmark Christmas movie. It's it is what it is. If you like movies like that, here's one. Um, but it hits it hits all of the it kind of hits all of the cliched beats that you'd expect this to hit, even down to like the tragedy being the thing that opens the movie is and it and it's just. You know, it, no harm, no foul. Right. I didn't. Like, I didn't, not saying it's not bad for that, yeah. but there's so many of it. Right, right, right. Okay. So to me, I'm just like, it's it's whatever. It's not necessarily for me, and that's fine. Not every movie has to be. I think I've watched less of those than you have, I guess. Because uh, for so. me, I was like, I found this kind of refreshing and light, and I love the way it was shot, and I found both the lead actors very likable and uh, interesting, good performances. Yeah, I don't know. It worked for me. But there are some bonus features here. There's the Q&A with the director and the two lead actors that's done over Zoom. Uh, there's an interview with the director and the actors, which is more standard EPK tour set stuff. There's about eight and a half minutes of deleted scenes, about 14 and a half minutes of outtakes. There's a bunch of uh, 35 millimeter and 16 millimeter uh, film tests. There's light and costume tests. There's look at the dance choreography, fight rehearsal, then poster galleries. Uh, and there's a short film by Ozan I did not watch. It's about uh, 15 minutes long called A Summer Dress. So I cannot speak to the quality of a summer dress. Uh, we're going to move on to our next one, which is another foreign film, but this time from a different country entirely called Dead Pigs. Now, you may be saying to yourself, oh, God, here's another horror film. Come on, guys. Like, shouldn't you have bundled this with the other ones? Well, no, it's not a horror film. In fact, you may have even heard the title of this before because the director of this, Kathy Yan recently was sort of brought out as like a big deal for being the director of 2020's Birds of Prey. And this was the, I believe the only other film she had done before this was this Chinese movie. Apparently Dead Pigs, the the actual Chinese title is Floating City on the Sea. So I'm not sure how that, I guess they're like, Dead Pigs will get more people renting it, I guess. Okay. Um, And this premiered at uh, 2018 Sundance Film Festival in, it's only on DVD, which I thought was weird because I think this is a very pretty movie. Yeah. Um, but, and it's very, it can be a little hard to follow because there's a lot of sort of 
storylines that are coalescing into a bigger thing. But because of that, and because John has watched it more recently than I have, I'm going to ask him to describe the Oh, plot. it's a movie about um, gentrification, is mm -hmm. what it is, essentially. So you have this situation where uh, there's a woman who has a modestly successful hair salon business, uh, and she lives in kind of a... It's a dump, honestly. She's lived in that neighborhood her whole life, like, even before she had her, like, successful salon. And it's a family house. Yeah, and developers want to come and build this hideously atrocious multi-use condo that is like a Spanish mission, like a faux Spanish mission that sits in the middle of these like big high-rise towers. It's so fucking ugly. It's so ugly. And they want her land. So it becomes like a thing where they are pushing to build there and she doesn't want to give up her home. It's an interesting movie in that, yeah, it does have kind of an ensemble cast. We get to know uh, her brother and and her nephew, her, her brother's son. Mm -hmm. um, and we are introduced to these people across a strata of socioeconomic places in their life. Um, for instance, we when we first meet the... Uh, the nephew, it's like he's a waiter at a fancy, super fancy restaurant, and then you come to get to know him a little bit more. Um, so you get to know all these characters over the course of this thing, and really, the, I think the interesting thing about Dead Pigs is, one, it doesn't vilify anyone for the decisions that they make, which is kind of unusually empathetic, because a lot of times they want to paint the land developers as, like, money-grubbing and evil, and the land developer and architect, well, it's really the architect that's that's more the character than the land developer. But yeah. the architect, really, it's like, this is a bad, like a rundown mud hole of a neighborhood. Like, there's nobody there, and there's nothing there. And it really is a case of, like, we could build something, and then people could live, and life will come back to this neighborhood. And has, like, really good intentions. Like, mm. he's not necessarily presented as, as a as a villain, the way that you would expect like a movie about gentrification to present the well, people it, that want to move into those neighborhoods. And there's the weird thing with him where like, which I didn't totally understand what's going on with it, but like he's, a, he is an architect, but also he's oh, Zazzy beats shows up. Yeah, He's a guy they hire yeah. to go and pretend to be like heads of corporations at like, you know, ribbon cuttings, cuttings and stuff like they, cause he's a white guy and like, a, cause he's a smiling, good looking yeah. white guy. So they have him, they, they, he, they, he can be employed in China as a generic white guy for different yeah, events. Exactly. It's like, that's <laughs> like his fashion job. Shows. It's like, they, she's like, Oh, do you want this job? Or have you ever modeled before? He's like, no, I'm a fucking architect. Like, well, check out how much this first check is for. He's like, yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> I really liked this. I liked all the characters. Um, I, everybody is, everybody is interesting and kind of has their own stories going on and it's kind of empathetic. And I think they're all kind overall, of kooky. Yeah. Um, I, I really did enjoy dead pigs. There's also like, you do see some of the visual flair that she displays in birds of prey. It's not necessarily pushed to the same extreme as birds of prey, Yeah, but there are certain shots that are like neon lit shots that are, that are, I mean, you can tell they're from the same director. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, Dead Pigs I thought was really w worth discovering if you've seen and liked Birds of Prey and you haven't seen her earlier movie. This it's it's really solid. It's very very stylish. It like I said the characters are all interesting. I thought it was a little overlong. I thought like mm -hmm. it stretched some of these stories out much further than they needed to, but for like a first film it's pretty remarkably good. Uh it's certainly not what I was expecting. Our final film this week is Mortal Kombat Legends Battle of the Realms, available in Blu-ray or 4K. I did not realize that there was a first 
first Mortal Kombat Legends film called Scorpion's Revenge. Uh, I just had no idea. I just, generally speaking, whatever is coming out from Warner Brothers animation series, I'm like, yeah, 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 just send it. Uh, I'll watch it. Sometimes they like them, sometimes I don't. I know John's not the biggest fan of their animation department, but, uh, I am not at all a big Mortal Kombat guy. I mean, I've played the games. Who hasn't played the games? But this one-on-one fighting combat games is just never my thing. And ever since I got rheumatoid arthritis now, it's like, well, I can play them for like five minutes before I'm like, ouch, I can't play this anymore. So I knew Mortal Kombat, in the last movie, that live-action movie, I'm sorry, that fucking sucked. That was terrible. Any of you guys out there still defending it, I don't know what to tell you. I hope that someday you'll wake up and realize how wrong you are, because that is an awful, awful movie. But the surprise was I really liked Mortal Kombat Legends Battle of the Realms. I know you did not, but I had no idea that this was basically going to be about as violent as Story of Ricky. It was just like, holy shit, violent, over-the-top craziness. I admit, the first 30 minutes, I had no fucking clue what was going on. I understand the basics of what Mortal Kombat and the universe is and some of these characters. But this is a direct sequel, and I didn't see the first one. So I was like, wait, what? Who did what with, with the what? And it's just, you know, the fighters fighting the evil fighters and changing allegiances and people being really brutally graphically ripped in half. And uh for me, I was like, this was just colorful enough and fast moving enough. And really, I thought really well animated enough, especially with how well and excessively they did the gore. That I'm like, yeah, this is for me. I like this. But John is going to give counterpoint. Counterpoint, you did not like this. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, I didn't like it. Hey, uh, it is it is gory, and and I do think that they, um, they do stage the stuff for maximum goriosity. Does <laughs> <laughs> I make up words? It works. Um, we know yeah. what you meant. Yeah. Uh, hey, but I don't like Mortal Kombat. I don't think enough. I think that that's what it comes down to. I think that I think that so far I've treated myself to what four different feature length things and some shorts and some cartoons and I I I kind of think it's almost too dopey even as a video game. So when it leaves the confines of a video game, I find it even dumber. <laughs> I'm not I'm not a Mortal Kombat guy, I don't think. I I think it took this one this was finally the last this like let me close straw. the book and be like, nah, I think it's safe to say I just don't like Mortal Kombat. Okay. Like so, well, like wait. they can keep on making movies and I can keep on not liking them, but at this point I think I can sit them out and not feel like any one way. Right. So just remind me next time I have movies and if one of them's a Mortal Kombat, you can go, movie. get it out of here. Or you could, you know, or maybe put it in front of me and I'll, and see if it'll be the one that wins me over. Uh, uh, I don't know. But I just, you know, what'll be really fun is when they finally get the Lego stuff in the Mortal Kombat and put it together. Just put and, it I, all. and then you're like, oh, John, guess what I got? A two hour Lego Mortal Kombat movie. So I can just be like, uh, <sighs> please make it in. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could give a shit about any of the mythology here. It's just like, it skips past everything. It doesn't dwell on anything. It's just like, and now the next this thing, and now action, the next thing. Yeah. It's just a straight up action animated film. And on that level, I had a really good time with it. But I, I couldn't tell you now what the actual story was outside of the thing we all know that Mortal Kombat is well, You know, is about. there's realms, and the realms are going to take over the realms, and the guys are not going to let the realms take over the realms. Yeah. And, and oh, in this one, there actually is a Mortal Kombat tour tournament, yeah. unlike the live-action movie, which for some reason is called Mortal Kombat. 
Yeah, I think it's, you know, I, I don't want to beat up on it too much. It, it really is another case. It's just like Summer of 85. They're, they're exactly the same, those movies. No, it's, it's like it in that it's just not for me. And I think it really took this one for me to go, like, I don't think I'm interested in Mortal Kombat as a property. Well, like, I don't, th- I, I don't I get that, I... man. I just don't have the, it doesn't have the same built-in appeal to me it does yeah. to other people, you know, which is why I'm su- so surprised I enjoyed this, but I enjoyed this on a, not because it's Mortal Kombat, but because it was a bunch of super gory, violent action. It's like something, even, we didn't have the word edgelord in the 90s, so, <laughs> but I'm glad it exists today, because I think that was my problem with Mortal Kombat, even back then, was kind of going, this is like the edgelord version of, like, Street Fighter. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, the one thing I'll say though, that I thought was by far the high point here was there is a bonus feature called combat gags for about four minutes with just like in-studio voice work, um, largely from Joel McHale who plays Johnny Cage. And they apparently just let him just make up a half the dialogue that he had. They're like, this is what you got to get across. So there's like multiple takes of him just being outrageous with the character and alternate takes that are really genuinely funny as shit. And you're like, there's oh, some there like really they would have had to shoot it again because people start cracking up before he's even finished the line. Oh, I wish I would have watched. I wish I would have watched that. Maybe that's <laughs> online somewhere. Yeah. I, I was like, okay, that was, even if you didn't like the movie, I, I love Joel McHale. I think he's charming and very funny. And here's like just him getting a chance to have fun. There's an audio commentary with the producer and the screenwriter. Uh, there's voices of combat, which a lot of the more the voice actors who worked on this, there's God of the, God and the dragon battling for earth realm, which is just, an EPK featurette. Uh, and that's it. And that is also it for Digital Noise. We did it, John. We did the whole giant, intimidating stack. I was worried for a minute there. The first couple entries were going so fast. I was like, oh, man, we're going we're gonna to marathon through these. And I'm like, oh, wait, we had some that it's like enough people have seen. We don't have to. It's kind of funny because the ones that we've probably already talked to death in the past, like Clarkwork Orange mm-hmm. or Inglorious Bastards, things we've really talked about a lot with our friends, yeah. somehow ended up being the ones we talked about <laughs> I know, it's true. <laughs> it's true. Well, we have strong feelings. Yeah. That's all. And I, and I'm, and I meant no offense, I actually looked directly over to my right and saw a Clockwork Orange Funko Pop. I know. It's Courtney's. In my okay. defense, it's Which Courtney's. was not... I just want to frame it as, if you own one, I, it was not... Nothing I'm not saying that. that. I'm saying... The fact that there is a licensing department for Clockwork Orange <laughs> is, funky. is what bothers me more than the fact that there is merch. Yeah, agreed. Uh, so what's the pick of the week this week, John? Oh, uh, I have, I have got, multiple choices okay. that it could be. I've got multiple choices as well. I think Green Knight is one of the best films of 2021. Mm-hmm. There you go. I think that the Universal Monster films, I love them. This is yet another release of them. If you don't own them, it probably means that you don't love them. So... Nothing about the 4K set is all of a sudden going to make you love them. Yeah. I feel like anybody who's already watched them and has any affection for them owns them in some particular format. This is a great uh, visual upgrade, and yay, now you have them in 4K. And then the other one to me is just a matter of like a movie I don't want to see get overlooked, which is Dead Pigs. Hmm. So those three are kind of vying for position. I think ultimately, um, I'm kind of going to throw... I think I'm going to throw it to... I think I'm going to throw it to Dead Pigs for this because Green Knight doesn't need my help or support. Yeah, that's People are true. aware of it. And again, the Universal Monsters, sure. if you got them, you got them. So I actually think I'm going to throw my pick of the week to Dead Pigs. 
it may not have even been my favorite movie, but I think it's the one that needs a vocal mm. supporter on the show to be like, hey, seek this out. This is really damn good. It's funny because you, I'm going to go with your pick. I try, usually, unless I have very strong feelings, we'll go like, nope, we're going with my pick. We're like, sure, it'll be dead pigs, which I was just okay on. But I mean, the two I would have picked were the ones you didn't really get a chance to dive into the Universal Richard Pryor collection, which oh, I think man. is tremendous. God. And then the Kolchak collection, which is. Not only good, they did such a good upgrade, and it's all the episodes, but it's just packed with bonus features. Even I, having not watched the Richard Fryer set, because I haven't, you've loaned it to me. I have it now at my house. Mm-hmm. It's like I think the thing says it's twenty six hours it's, worth of material it's or something. Huge. It's exhaustive, and for the price that it is, like honestly, it'd be the first time I ever did a pick of the week that wasn't something I'd, I hadn't seen. <laughs> <laughs> but like. It is a great gift set. It yeah. is like if you have anybody in your life that likes Richard Pryor at all, and I think it's only is it only available through Time Life. Time Life? Yeah, but I saw that for and because they don't always do this. They sometimes Time Life stuff isn't even available through Amazon. But I did find that it was oh, for great. sale through Amazon yeah, as well. That set is an it's, it is an amazing exhaustive set. It's the kind of set that like I wish more comedians had box sets like this yeah. because it really is like. An entire history lesson in, in La- the box. Last year, they put out the Robin Williams set. There was another sort of like, here's a gigantic amount of discs, a collection, all the stand-ups, all that, uh, that I didn't think was as exhaustive as this, but was still really good. So it feels like this is a track they're on right now. Nice. Of like, okay, let's let's take on the... Obviously, Cosby is out, but like, you know, let's take on the classic comedians and do this. I'm like, yeah, please, more of that. So what are you saying? I should sub out Dead Pigs for Richard Pryor collection? I don't know, man. It's your call. I'm like, you make the call. I think you should. You it, think it's I should? A great, it's a great set, and I, the only reason I can't is because I haven't seen it. Alright, fair enough. Well, it's Richard Pryor, then. You should buy it. It's good. Get it for your dad. Get it for John. He wants a copy. You can't I, hold on to copy. mine forever. I'd take a copy. <laughs>